1: Hi,
2: this is JR Lowry, and this is Career Sessions. My guest today is Andrew Ting, who I came across on LinkedIn at some point in the past year. There's a message in there about the value of LinkedIn and expanding your network, because Andrew and I met through the platform and are speaking for the first time today. Andrew is a lawyer, a professor, and a startup veteran. By the time this podcast is released, he will have started a new job with a firm called Panorama Education as their chief legal officer. Uh, Panorama provides... Ed- software to the K-12 space. Prior to joining Panorama, he was the general counsel for Qualify, a fintech that applies machine learning and big data analytics to point-of-sale finance. Prior to that, he held general counsel roles at Canopy Ventures, Spring Harbor Financial, and Promontory Financial. He started his career as a strategy consultant working for Braun Consulting, and after getting a law degree, went to work for the law firm Latham and Watkins. Andrew also teaches startup law at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business and Business Planning at George Washington University's Law School. He's a charter member of TechGC, a legal influencer for 4C Legal, and an advisory board member for the ACC NCR Leadership Academy. Andrew earned his bachelor's degree in social studies from Harvard University and his JD from Harvard Law School. He and his family live in the Washington, D.C. area. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for doing the show with me today. It's good to meet you. My pleasure. So you're a lawyer by background, but you spent a lot of time on the business side of your career in the startup space. How did you gravitate toward that world?
1: I like to make an impact. So whether it's by counseling, legal advice, growing a business, I don't find that there's a big division between the legal work and the business work. In fact, in most of my jobs, I probably spend more than half of my time not dealing with legal issues, just Mm. dealing with issues that require good judgment. Yeah,
2: it's funny. I'm not a lawyer, but I find myself doing a lot of legal related things. We all kind of joke that you become a closet lawyer to a degree when you become (laughs) enough of a general manager because there's legal aspects to everything. So um, yeah, I sort of am the inverse of what you just said. You were up until recently, the general counsel for Qualify. Tell our listeners a little bit about that business, what it's about, what your day to day was like there.
1: Absolutely. So I was the general counsel for Qualify I led the legal team, compliance team, and government relations team at Qualify. Qualify services about 500,000 or so Americans a year. And so when they go into one of our 7,000 retail store partners to buy a mattress, furniture, auto parts, and they don't want to pay all the money up front, we get them a loan or at least. And so I made sure that the customers were treated fairly, transparently, and just kept everything to make sure we not just did the right thing, but also the legal thing.
2: Fair enough. You kind of knew you were in the mortgage space earlier. So you've been in that lending space Mm -hmm. for a few different companies that you've worked for over the years.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the last 11 years or so, I've worked at financial services companies, trying to help people buy the things they need, whether it's a home, furniture, mattress, whatever. And financial services banks are complex. and There's a lot lot of laws governing them. But in the end, just want to do the right thing by the individual customer. I was talking earlier today to a friend who's worked in mortgage for 10, 20 years or so, and he was talking about lending in underserved areas and how you can help build intergenerational wealth, right? You help the dad buy a house that gets passed down to the kids, et cetera. It's not in the renting cycle.
2: Yeah. Is that sense of purpose, has it always been particularly important to you and what you do?
1: Purpose matters, right? We've spent so much time and effort in our jobs. And law, by its nature, is very abstract and technical. So it's sometimes Mm. hard to say at the end of the day, like, what did I do today tangibly, right? Like, I read a law, Did it really make sense? It was kind of gray. And then I decided to go this way instead of that way. And so that's one of the reasons I decided to make a transition to education. So I teach, as you said in the intro, at two universities, just like to directly impact people. That being said, helping people buy things they need, that's a very noble mission as well.
2: Absolutely. We'll come back to the teaching in a little bit. Let's go back to the beginning for you. So you went to Harvard undergrad. Did you envision, you started as a strategy consultant. Did you envision yourself being a lawyer? Did you know you want to go to law school then or
1: no? Not at all. I have had a very winding path in terms of my career, quote unquote, career. I worked as a graphic designer in the IT help desk at Harvard. I thought I wanted to be a physicist. So I actually started as a physics major, then went to social hmm. studies, which is social philosophy. And I didn't really know lawyers growing up. I grew up middle class. I didn't know any lawyers growing up. Yeah. Uh, so the thought of going to law school never really crossed my mind as a possibility until my senior year. Yeah. Management consulting I chose because it seemed a good general path, like worked mm-hmm. with a lot of different clients, get exposure to different industries. So I did that for a year and then to Harvard Law School and got in there as well. So I worked mostly for clients in the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. um, selling drugs marketing drugs. And the drugs that I marketed was actually for multiple sclerosis, the drug mm-hmm. named Avenix, which is a good drug. And I actually helped put together focus groups, folks who are experiencing multiple sclerosis, trying to build an online community, therapies, support networks, resources they need. So it was really good work.
2: Awesome. And then from there, you applied to law school, you got into Harvard and went mm-hmm. to Harvard. When you were in your law school years, did you foresee what kind of law did you foresee yourself mm-hmm. practicing when you graduated?
1: Sure, that changed too. I've yeah. always been interested by the intersection of technology and the law. And initially, I thought I wanted to go to court and do intellectual property litigation, a patent litigation. I found it dreadfully boring. <laughs> I mean, no disrespect to the folks who make a great living and enjoy helping clients, crucial work. But I remember I went to the federal circuit, which handles the appeals court in Washington, D.C. that handles these cases. And we spent three days in a case with the U.S. post office going through the dictionary, literally going through dictionary definitions of the patent for mail sorting, envelopes of mail sorting, important machine, but I was just very, very bored by the end of it. And I found that litigation was more winner takes all. And I'm actually uh, kind of like, hey, let's do a deal. Let's have everybody win. Let's build a long-term relationship instead of let's sweep the other guy off the table. And so I decided to try to become a technology transactions lawyer instead. And so I went to the Latham & Watkins law firm.
2: Yeah, so you went to Latham & Watkins and you did get to, I mean, I know you did a bit of IP law, but you did do some M&A too. And how has that time that you spent in that law firm been foundational to the rest of your career in terms of the skill set you took with you?
1: Absolutely. I'm uh, detecting a theme as I talk about discovering new things yeah. interests about yourself just by experiencing So I started off in the technology transactions group, awesome experience. And then I started doing venture capital work. So Mm. basically working with startups, getting them financing and leveraging my technology skills to kind of understand what made them tick. And then as I got more senior, partners said, hey, Andrew, if you want to advance, you need to do big deals, not just like the venture capital deal for a million dollars here, like a couple million there. So I started doing bigger equity deals, debt deals for public companies. And some of them were very large, Fortune 500 public companies in the US. And I started doing international work in London, where you were based and around the world in Singapore. I did a succumbent in Singapore for a summer. Hmm. And it was a lot of fun. So after six years, 10 months later, Latham, lo and behold, I had accumulated a very kind of broad and deep corporate skill set with technology now. work, financing, equity, debt, corporate governance, some IPOs. And at that point, I was very proud of the experiences that I had accumulated, that I could actually be the lawyer's leading calls for like a $1 billion M&A deal, a $1 billion financing deal. And I thought to myself, well, do I stay in this job or do I go? And for me, one framework I use is that, hey, if I picture myself five years from now, and I'm doing the same thing I'm doing now, how do I feel about it? I felt a little sick. Yeah. (laughs) Because at the last year, I had built about 2,700 hours that year. Mm, Wow! I was married. My wife, I met her at Harvard Law School. She's a very hard-charging lawyer. So we had two little kids. They were one and three years old at the time. And it just wasn't good for my family or myself, my health, to work that hard. And I felt like my skills had plateaued. I had already discovered that I could do it. But says, you know what? I'm going to start returning recruiter calls and go on to the next thing.
2: Yeah. I was struck in reading your background by how much breadth you had in your law school, your law firm. Usually when people go into a law firm, they tend to get pigeonholed pretty quickly. And that ends up sort of driving the optionality that they've got or lack of it later on. In your case, you had a lot of different work. You were lucky in that respect.
1: Yeah, it was a deliberate decision to try to become broad and deep. It was not the preferred path. As you said, the preferred path is to specialize and become the best you can be in a particular niche which works at a huge global law firm like Latham & Watkins or the, the Magic Circle Firms in London,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: you can have each specialty part working and the whole body works together. But it's a little limiting, right? Like if you only do one little thing, and I wanted to do everything.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and yeah.
1: really be a general counsel, a general lawyer. So I switched practice groups four times. And I had to learn from scratch each time. For most of my career, I was always behind my peers mm. because they had specialized from day one or day two. Right. But I made up for it in an ability to learn quickly, in really efficient project management, and focusing on relationships with people, my clients, so that they knew me and they say, hey, Andrew, it's fine. You can call me back tomorrow after you figure it out, wink, wink, because they know me, they like me, they trust me, I figure it out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good when you've kind of built that reputation for yourself. And the point you were making a minute ago about this sort of looking out five years, am I going to be happy doing what I'm doing? It's a good way to think about it. I get asked a lot of times about what would you do differently in your career? And certainly I can say I stayed in some places too long. And you only realize afterwards, in my case at least, that I really should have left some of these places that I've worked before I did just because they had run their course for me.
1: Yeah. And it a you know, change, does seem to be accelerating now at different jobs. Like yeah. my father worked at the University of Southern California for 22, 23 years or so. Right. And now who stays at the same job 20 years or 10 years or even five years? Like I stayed at Qualify for two and a half years. It was yeah. a momentous, eventual tenure, but nobody's asked me, why did you leave so early? Right? Yeah. It seems like two years is fine. It's interesting.
2: Yeah, it's a really different, I mean, we think a lot in and- my current company about attrition and retention how to manage it and i mean we're very fortunate we have a pretty low attrition rate but i mean i'll readily say to people like i don't expect you to spend your whole life here like very few of us are going to spend our whole careers here we do have some people i think i've had a couple who work for me who hit their 30 year anniversaries this year oh wow which that's is amazing that's when amazing. you think about it but it's becoming rarer You know, people are moving around more regularly. And in some cases, they completely change career directions Mm -hmm. or they do the portfolio career and Mm -hmm. do different things at once, which is a little bit what you've been doing over the Mm -hmm. past however many years with the teaching as well.
1: Yeah, I try to diversify and not get all my meaning just in one bucket because I don't think there's any one job or one relationship that can satisfy all the parts that make James happy, right? Or Andrew happy. Yeah. And so instead of feeling resentful that one job can't do it all, I start to do other things on the side, like you're yeah. doing with Pathwise, for example, right? Yeah. And then the whole, even though it's a lot of late nights and side hustles and such, I find that the whole is more meaningful.
2: Yeah. I mean, for me, I actually feel like, I mean, I learned something from every conversation like this one that I have. The writing that I do gives me an opportunity to organize my thoughts that if I didn't do it, I probably wouldn't get them as well organized. And I use that in my day to day. It just, there's this sort of symbiotic relationship between what I do in my job and what I think about and try and help people with in my spare time. So Mm -hmm. how did you get into the teaching?
1: It's a long story, but to keep it short, I became friends with a pretty nerdy associate at the Latham Law Firm. I was probably the only one who would read his academic articles and talk about and debate them. And he left the law firm and after a few years became a tenured professor at the George Mm -hmm. Washington University Law School. He always thought, for whatever reason, I would be a great teacher. And so I put my name in and just waited for an opening. And I got a call in the middle of the fall semester saying that a professor who taught business planning class for 30 years had a medical emergency and could not finish the semester. They asked Mm -hmm. me to step in. And so my teaching career started. Just took the class that was offered to me. Had to learn a lot of transactional tax work, complex stuff very quickly to not just learn it, but teach it. Right. And it was a hard path to becoming a teacher. I remember just a brief personal anecdote, probably the worst presentations I ever gave where I was suffering from a hernia. So I actually mm. had my intestinal wall given out and it was bulging in, but I had to teach the class because there were schedules and there were exams going and my hernia surgery was scheduled, but not yet. I remember trying to teach transactional tax for three hours on a Monday night until 9 p.m. to my students, none of whom were very treadable realized that I was in so much pain, pushing against the podium so like my guts wouldn't fall out. And I was saying, gosh, this is hard. (laughs) That being said, since then, (laughs) I've a decent teacher, yeah. And I think the most important thing really isn't the material, even though my students really like that I'm a practical teacher based on experience, not just an academic. I've done real stuff, but I help them find jobs, help them have conversations about what do you really want to do? Because the law, a lot of professions, isn't a very fun profession, right? Mm. And just being honest with that and giving them a spirit of exploration. And then I crossed over, I was teaching a leadership class, and then I met a professor at Georgetown's business school, Janine Turner, who teaches communication, and she sponsored me to teach um, a class. And I pitched a class on entrepreneurship called Startup Law. So I've now ta- taught several hundred students in that class over the last couple of years at Georgetown Business School. And some of my students have gone on to found very promising companies, of which I'm proud to advise them on technology yeah. and corporate issues. So it's a really a virtuous cycle. I'm very grateful for that opportunity.
2: Yeah, it's great that, that both of those developed for you. I would imagine that your class at Georgetown is really popular. I mean, entrepreneurship is always something that people who go to business school are at least thinking about. and getting into the legal aspects of it and you being able to bring, I've been there, I've done it kind of experience, you know, must really help give an extra level of insight in that class.
1: Yeah. It's reached the maximum enrollment for an elective in the last couple of years. And I am proud of that. I think the most common comment from my students and their student evaluations, this class should be required curriculum, which I find is rare praise.
2: Oh, that is such rare praise. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we, I went to Harvard for my business school degree and we, entrepreneurial finance was unquestionably the most popular class in, that and that in capital markets. Those are like the two elective classes that were by far the hardest to get into at the time. I can't remember having anything that really strayed into trying to teach much of the legal aspects of things. So it's, it's great that you're able to do that at Georgetown. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Do you see a difference? I've always felt that law is one of these inertial kind of things for a lot of people. They do it because they feel like they should go to law school. But Then they get there and they kind of realize that it's not really for them. And your counseling, I mean, your conversations with business school students and law school students, do you see a a real difference in terms of the clarity of thought that they have around their career? Is one group more clear than the other? That's a really interesting
1: question. I would say everybody is confused, but they know they're confused. Right, And they know that they need to go into the working world and try things. I think for lawyers, a lot of them are going to the law firms because they have a lot of law school debt. And the law firms now pay a lot of money. But yeah. almost all of them, like I asked them, how many of you want to stay and make law firm partner? And it used to be one third, five years ago, would raise their hands. And now it's probably one or two people per class, like five wow. percent like that. Wow. Most of them just want to do it for a few years. think you. Would do, go do something else. I think maybe it's some selection bias because I'm the kind of guy who says I went in house to go work for a business, be more on the business side, really work with other executives to grow a business and just, I'm a business person with legal skills, right? We all kind of converge. Like as you were saying earlier, you are kind of a lawyer too, but came in from the business side, kind of closet lawyer, right? On the business school students, they want to do everything. And probably about two thirds of the class has their own side businesses or dreams for small businesses. A lot of them will take corporate jobs, but are working on the weekends or the nights to do what they want to do, have their own something, build their own thing. It's really exciting to tap into that entrepreneurial energy and try to shape it and guide it.
2: Yeah, I think that sort of perspective of becoming an entrepreneur has really changed. And like since I was in graduate school, I mean, at the time, the mantra was if you want to be an entrepreneur, great, but it's a full on experience. It's going to consume you. It will take every bit of your savings, all of your free time. In the scheme of things, it was a very narrow definition of entrepreneurship relative to today, where, as you say, like, the idea of a side hustle has become so much more common.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It is tough, though. Like, if any of your listeners want to invest in promising startups, I have a dozen students who are hustling for money right now. But you know, I respect them. I salute them. I enjoy starting businesses. Like Some of the companies I've started as general counsel, I've started giving them legal advice from just a handful of people to hundreds of people or like a billion in revenue or such. Mm -hmm. And for me, what addicts me is the journey, the growth journey of starting with a few, a dedicated team, scaling, figuring out the products and services that meet the demand and just flexing for it. It's kind of an amazing, exhausting growth journey, but all good things in life take time.
2: Yeah. And you're kind of in the midst of of another change, another change in your Mm -hmm. career direction. By the time this is released. Well, have started your new job. You want to talk a little bit about new company yeah. and what you're going to be doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So after 11 great years in financial services as a lawyer, general counsel, but also five years as a professor, I decided that education, teaching, mentoring, developing people, bringing out the best in people it was really near and dear to my heart. And so I was able to get a chief legal officer position at an education technology company. I will be starting tomorrow, but for your listeners on the podcast, it'll be July I've started. Yeah. And the company is called Panorama Education, and they serve about 10 million or so kindergarten through 12th grade students in the United States. And especially in the pandemic, helping kids stay in school do well in school. Academically, social, emotional support, helping teachers and school districts and administrations give students the support they need. Identify troubling behaviors and address them before small things become big things. So who
2: hires the company? Is it the school districts that hire? That
1: school district, that bring you in. That's exactly yeah. right. And we have a software platform that collects all the student data and then yeah. actions them to make the teacher's job easier. Say, hey, Andrew, need to call home or they keep a parent-teacher conference or whatever other extra support needed Yeah, to make sure students are doing their very best.
2: Yeah. And it, you said it's kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade. So mm-hmm. pretty much For the, now.
1: Yeah. It may expand yeah. in the future.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I wish you the best of luck in that. Yeah. Will you keep teaching while you're doing this?
1: Absolutely. A uh, panorama, a lot of employees are former teachers. It's very much a mission-oriented education company. And so they celebrate that I continue to teach. Yeah,
2: that's great that you'll be able to do all of that. And you've got a little bit of a side hobby, I guess I'll call it, in terms of just your commitment to posting Mm -hmm. on LinkedIn about things you're thinking about, things that you experience or just other things going on in the world. Talk a little bit about that, I guess, and just sort of what you hope to make of that. Is it just a hobby or do you see it evolving into something more than that?
1: That's a great question. So during the pandemic, I was feeling a little bit isolated because we were stuck at home, not seeing people. I wasn't going to the office much. And I said, you know what? I'm on LinkedIn. I'll try posting once or twice a week. And I don't really know, honestly, what my personal brand is. It's probably a good thought exercise. I post yeah. on leadership, personal development, professional development, gratitude, mindfulness, conversations with my kids, Asian American identity and perspectives, legal issues, like a fintech panel that I posted on just yesterday. And for whatever reason, it's become quite popular. Like even when I step out in the hallway in my condo back of me, if my neighbors will say, Oh, I saw that. That was great. Or like people at work will say, Oh, that's amazing. You're so inspiring. Like when I'm coming out of the bathroom in the office, I'm like, hmm, I've actually reconnected with people I knew from law school. I haven't talked to for 18 years. Like I had a conversation yeah. with old friend last yesterday right, yeah. that I haven't talked to because she thought of me after seeing my LinkedIn post. So it's kind of amazing that despite all my inconsistent content, people have gotten a sense of authenticity, like even this opportunity to talk to you and your platform, your audience mm. came because something resonated. Yeah. So what's my secret sauce? I have no idea. I think most of my good ideas come between when I wake up around five in the morning, I'm tossing and turning, should I go back to sleep or not? And then I don't. And I lurch over to my computer and start typing something. And yeah. then lo and behold, there you go. So it's all an evolving journey. I think the common theme is just authenticity and trying to be a thoughtful, kind person, a sensitive yeah. person. And I'm still the same guy I was before I started publicly flinging things out. I'm actually a somewhat private person. Mm-hmm. I do a lot more listening than talking if you meet me. But hey, it seems to resonate and people seem to appreciate the content. So I guess I'll keep doing it. It's cool. Yeah. I think about views of my content within the last year, which is weird
2: which is amazing in the scheme of things. It's really amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I mean, LinkedIn, I've been on LinkedIn. I don't know how long you've been on LinkedIn. I've probably been on LinkedIn for 12 years, something like that, maybe longer. And it's changed a lot over time. Mm -hmm. It feels like there's a little bit of a cultural battle going on on LinkedIn right now in the sense of, is it just about recruiting is it only about work should you post about personal things yeah there's just a lot of debate that seems to be going on around not just the political topics but also just the personal ones and It'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve as a platform for sharing. But to me, I guess in the scheme of things, all of us bring our whole selves to work, right? All of us bring our whole selves home and it's impossible to fully separate things. Last week, we're recording this on what, July 12th? Last week, I was really distracted by what happened in Highland Park, Illinois. Absolutely. And I don't post about things like that very often, but I did about that. We lived there for seven years. Two of my kids were born there. It was very personal. And it was personal. I mean, we've spent the last, most of the last 20 odd years in Boston. And when the marathon bombing happened in Boston, that was personal to it. It was different. And it's just, you see people obviously who had their own experiences like that or medical issues or whatever, and they post about it and they resonate with a lot of people. And I think they also annoy a lot of other people who just feel like it should be more of a work-focused platform. So... I know your post about some of the sort of anti-Asian bias that I think was probably the single most viewed post that you've had. So clearly, Mm -hmm. it is resonating when you post.
1: What's interesting is that most of my audience and followers are not in the United States. I have a ton of followers from Southeast Asia and India. Mm. I guess India actually has like the number two amount of LinkedIn followers. And I have no idea why they follow me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but i'm glad that some of them send me very nice messages and such but it just reminds us that like your platform james is a global platform yeah and who knows like the stuff we say that's out there might give somebody the courage to make a change i
2: watch with a little bit of amusement the number of countries that have down people where people have downloaded this podcast and it's in the 30s at this point, and I mean, it's just interesting that people from, as you say, it's a global world, right? So people can find content from pretty much anywhere, and all these platforms make it so much easier for people to find their voice and to talk about things that get them excited. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You talked about getting up and doing some of your best writing at, in the wee hours of the morning. Do you find that there are particular times that are best for you to do certain things?
1: I'm very much a morning person and not a late night person. Everybody has a different rhythm. I wake up, it's quiet. So I'm not being distracted by emails or commitments. That's my best think time. Yeah. I'm just, I'm rested. I thrive in quiet times. One of the hardest things I found about being an executive is just like, you'll have like six, seven meetings a day, right? Mm. Where do you have time to think, to actually do work, like focused work? When there's always like the meeting or the email to respond to or the Slack message or the text message on your phone, etc. So I'm very much a morning person. I do confess working at home though, I do really like to take a 15 to 30 minute nap. I sneak it in the early afternoon. Nothing wrong with that. That's amazing for my, just to refocus me, get me energized the rest of the day. Um, Yeah, that was definitely one of the highlights of the pandemic
2: (laughs) for me is the ability to, when you just needed a quick snooze in between meetings to do that. That's harder something. to do it in the office. Yeah. Instead, you go and grab the fourth cup of coffee
1: of the day. I, I, I actually have slept on the floor several times in my old office there. Discreetly, turn off the lights, close the door, arrange yeah. a desk chair just so so it's not immediately yeah. obvious. Somebody does look inside. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs>
2: yeah, we <laughs> we all sit here. yet. <laughs> we pretty much all sit on the floor in our office in an open uh, layout, and so there's not really that same opportunity. Do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've kind of changed directions at a couple points in your career do you feel like you're at a point now particularly with this tilt into learning and education and development do you feel like you've kind of found your home or is it just this is your home for now
1: i think life is a book right yeah and each chapter life would be boring if somebody gave you the script of your life and say just live it see you in 50 years I like to have different interesting chapters. And I figure that I might go back to FinTech. I still have my network friends. I'm talking at a panel um, just two days from now. And there are whole categories of jobs, and industries that exist now that didn't exist 10 years ago, right? True. Um, Like crypto. Like one of my friends took a crypto job just yesterday, right? A crypto investing job. And crypto is having a little bit of a winter right now. But there'll be winners. There'll be a lot of companies that shake out. And so I think you have to be opportunistic and see what's on the horizon. But it's balancing opportunity, innovation versus stability, right? And my philosophy of money is I don't like to worry about money. So I just kind of want to work for good, stable companies, preferably high growth, the startup thing. So it's exciting, but also like the fundamentals are good. People understand the value that the company brings to its customers.
2: Yeah. How big was Qualify when you joined it? When I joined,
1: about 220 or so. And then by the time I left, probably about 300 or so.
2: People. People. Yeah, people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a decent size, like past the sort of bootstrapping part of being a oh, startup. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of customers a year. So, yeah, very established. What do you see looking back
2: over the roles you've had? What are the strengths that you sort of innately have that you've drawn on again and again?
1: I remember... I had to take a battery of personality tests for various executive firms when I was recruited for different roles. I took one two months ago, which made me raise my eyebrow. I think it was accurate, but it had different values that appealed to you. And for me, it was love. Love was the number one. It's like, really? (laughs) Woo woo, right? I think I'm good at building relationships. I'm actually fundamentally like a values-oriented person. And I'm always been good at watching people mm. and connecting with people, being empathetic, understanding what's important to them and speaking their language. I think it goes from a genuine curiosity about people, which is good. And it may stem from when I was a kid, I would spend five hours a week just watching people that have no idea what they would be saying. We'd go to like family gatherings. People would speak a different dialect of Chinese. Everybody spoke English, but they wanted to speak the dialect. I just watched people and just understand what they were saying by what they were doing and just fit in, right? So love, which is an odd thing for a strategic cunning a lawyer, a legal mm-hmm. executive. But I think it evens me out. And I think if I think of myself as a general counsel or a general counselor, Hmm. understanding understand the needs, the clients, connecting with people to get things done, building a team, motivating a team, bringing out the best in students, people who work for me, then it all starts to tie in a bit.
2: It goes back a little bit to what you're saying about litigation versus M&A law, right? The winner take all versus the trying to come up with a win-win.
1: Yeah. Relationship building.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are obviously all different kinds of lawyers who are good at many different kinds of things, and you've obviously branched out beyond that as well.
1: It's what an uh, ever-expanding journey.
2: <laughs> for all of us. Yeah. In that light, I was just about to ask you, what have you worked on developing, or what are you working on developing in terms of your style or your skill set?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. With the switch from financial services to education, there's a lot of substantive legal knowledge that I need to develop in the education yeah. law. I will hire people to supplement my own personal knowledge, but that's the most pressing thing for me now. And, and law is very specialized. So that's the number one thing to be busy for the next couple of months. I'm comfortable leading teams about a dozen people. Legal teams are generally fairly small. And I think over time, I like to be, get more experience in managing more people, not just right now, direct reports one layer down. But managing more complex operations, I think, would be an interesting challenge.
2: Yeah. When you get into operations, there's a whole other level of detail that you end up having to wade into. Yeah, I was talking with somebody actually just today about it. You go from flying at 50,000 feet and being able to think these big thoughts to yeah. having to worry about like, okay, I was talking to a friend of mine from Fidelity the other day. Do we have enough people on the phone at this hour and this week of this year yeah, He and I both used to work at Fidelity, and needless to say, Monday mornings during tax season oh. were super, super busy, oh. and it was almost impossible to bring in enough people to support. That's just one little example, right? But just that the detail that you have to get into in the op space. Yeah, absolutely. You made a passing reference to hiring a minute ago. What do you look for? I mean, other than you, know, you talk about hiring, some of that technical knowledge that you lack coming into the education space, but... What do you look for in people more generally when you're hiring?
1: Yeah, I look for conscientious people who love learning, mm. right? I would take people with potential over people who can just plug in and do the same thing, want to stay in a niche. I think I have a bias because I work at high growth companies where a lot of roles are kind of undefined and you're expected to wear a lot of hats. And I like to have people who are energized about that, saying, okay, I don't know anything about that. I'm a little scared, but I will learn. And this is a great growth opportunity. Catch me if I fall, guide me, please. But let's go for it. Let's charge for it. And I think now that I'm more experienced too, I really enjoy teaching people and bringing out the best in them. And my last few companies that I left, my deputy GC became the general counsel after I left and they were scared. But it was a great opportunity for them. And I think they're all very grateful that I gave them that stepping stone. I still continue to take phone calls with them, guide them on situations, et cetera. It's just part of a living legacy that you bring behind to develop.
2: Absolutely. When you're interviewing people, do you have a go-to question or two that you Mm -hmm. almost always ask?
1: No particular go-to question. I tend to improvise a lot based on the conversation. I really tailor our focus to soft spots, Interesting tidbits or something like pull on things. And it's a little odd, even in interviews, like 30 minutes, 45 minutes. I've had people cry. Yeah. Like, oh my God, you understand me so well. I'm like, I'm just a guy that you have an hour ago, right? (laughs) But I think the experience of being listened to is unfortunately not that common these days. Like, people are looking at their phone or attention spans are little. These work relationships become very deep and very real. And I'm proud of that, even though I'm certainly no superhuman. I'm just a guy trying to get a couple hours of sleep at the end of the night. But we do our best to be a force for good or a force for love, I suppose.
2: In your case, a force for love, since that's your, your most treasured uh, value, right? Yeah, I guess. You talked earlier about the gentleman that you worked with at the law firm who ended up becoming a tenured professor and... Mm-hmm. Helped get you into teaching. Who else has helped you along the way, and, and how?
1: Since we're talking about fidelity and living in Boston, so my mentor is a guy named Mark Rolick. He was okay. the, the chief legal officer at Mass Mutual and chief administrative officer as well for many years. I started to follow him because he wrote a series of exceptionally insightful leadership articles in the Association for Corporate Counsel's Docket magazine. He had like one a month for years, and after a while, I was like, dude, I'm just going to like email this guy and say thank you. And then he's very gracious with his time. Like I talked to him on Monday morning. He saw on LinkedIn that I was going to another position. He reached out to, hey, can I be useful? And we talked about 30, 60, 90 day plans, right? His his legacy is retired now, but his legacy is bring up the next generation of legal executives. So he's somebody who really comes to mind who's taught me. There's one law firm partner named Joel Trotter, who has influenced a lot of my own substantive skills. Another person named Angela angeloska Wilson who's taught me a lot about how to handle people with integrity Mm. and really listen to your clients, and who's always learning and kind of entrepreneurial. So the cool thing about professional journey is that you try to work with a lot of different people and absorb the styles that resonate with you, and it becomes you. And a lot of things don't. Right. Like I was joking with Mark that you can learn a lot of things from a bad boss about what yes. not to do. And it's very useful learning up to a certain point, And then it becomes just painful. Yeah. <laughs> <do you> <laughs> but fortunately, I've been fortunate and lucky in my career. Relatively.
2: Yeah. you the Curiosity and learning have come out a lot in the discussion we've had. What's at the top of your learning agenda right now, other than learning the ropes of the new job?
1: Yeah. So one great thing about PanRab Education, it is a company of teachers and learners. Mm. So they actually assigned me four textbooks to read Okay. Um, before day one. So I've downloaded my Kindle. I read them on vacation. Some are on instructional design, basically how teachers and schools measure students in individual performance and the links between academic performance and behavioral issues too, right? And how the better interventions actually not just hit like better reading, math, whatever, but also specific behaviors, like being able to stay focused attention, transition between recess, the classroom, et cetera, have the right, calibrate the right behaviors that reinforce each other. But if you address academic stuff in isolation and ignore that a student just really needs to take a break, right? And you do that before they can refocus and learn those kinds of things. So Completely alien to financial services and lending. I'm, again, so grateful that they decided to take the chance to hire me for this job. But it was great to actually read like a 400-page textbook on instructional design and optimizing interventions and multi-tiered systems of support. So kind of geeky, but I guess yeah. the number two value behind Love is intellectual curiosity. I love to learn. Yeah. And now I'll be working with really talented product designers who are taking that textbook Operationalizing into software used for tens of millions of students in the US. Right. And I think that is super cool. You can take ideas and try to make these student lives and their parents' lives, family lives just better through yeah. this support.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the education industry. You think about like when I was a kid or you were a kid, I mean, really. You were dependent on the teacher and whatever textbook the school district chose, right? I mean, that was really about, with a few exceptions, really the extent of external resources that school systems would rely on. Now, all the video content that's available and podcast content that's available and the software companies like the one that you're about to start with, it's a completely different game. It's like, it's just changed the way that school systems think about it, that teachers integrate all of that in. So it's an exciting space to be in.
1: It is, yeah. There's almost too much, right? There's the richness of all the content out there, like quality content, like pathwise and your content, but there's millions of voices out there. And what's the sorting algorithm, right? Yeah. Because our attention span is so finite that we can only focus and choose to do certain things each day and not feel overwhelmed. That's something I grapple with. Like I say no to a lot more things than I say yes to.
2: Yeah. But I mean you could certainly get pulled in too many different directions. I guess I'd like to believe that on average, the best content is rising to the top, right? I mean, there's some great stuff out there that people have put onto YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And they, in the sort of classic world of a limited number of media outlets, they never would have found their way out there. And clearly there's, like we were talking about earlier with LinkedIn, there's something that they're doing that's resonating. And it's great that they've got that way to communicate. I don't know, there is the whole paradox of choice thing, like millions of videos, where do I start? Mm -hmm. Yeah, any final, conscious of time, any final advice you want to give our listeners about career management or leadership or gratitude or any of the other things that you tend to be thinking
1: about? Yeah, thank you so much. uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and hope that we can continue our conversation through um, articles or other things, whatever, I can be useful to you and your platform, and your audience, too. I very much enjoy Pathwise's email newsletters. I will save them in my inbox. Usually, I try to just deal with things in my inbox, throw the ball back, delete, delete. (laughs) I will save them, and then actually click through the links and savor them, and then I'll archive them for later. And always be learning, always be authentic. The meaning of life, I think, is to keep asking questions, because your meaning will change over time, and just accept it. The ground shifts and you just have to kind of surf it. Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm
2: honored that I'm one of the things that you said yes to, I'm sure there are a lot of different things that you could go do. And I wish you the best of luck as you start this new job and a new industry and get to further your passion for education and helping people become better versions of themselves. So thank you for your time today, Andrew. And like I said, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thank you, James, for you and everything you do. Yep. Appreciate it. Take care. That wraps up this session of career sessions brought to you by Pathwise. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks and have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of PathWise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.